welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Daniel Valcassel on April 2nd. to start this morning uh, and to discuss a topic that's very, very near and dear to my heart, which is God's mission for the world. And it's a very broad topic, obviously, so we'll do what we can with the time we have. But I'd like to start with a story that I heard recently from uh, very reputable sources. Sixty years ago, a couple from Decatur, the town where we live, uh, their son died in Vietnam from a terrible accident, not in combat but they lost their 18-year-old boy. And a year after his death, they went on a cruise to the Caribbean. Uh, And there on the ship, they met a man, young man, who served their table. And they made, you know, a bit of a friendship with him, eventually invited him over to their home. And he came to visit and stayed nine months uh, with them, kind of taking the place of their son. And they accepted him with open arms and gave him a Bible and he encountered the gospel of Christ, and that changed his life. He returned to his country, started four churches, was very instrumental in advancing God's kingdom in his country. And uh, when I I heard that story, I thought, you know, it's interesting that that is exactly how God's kingdom has advanced for centuries, by personal contact, personal communication. And I invite you during this session to, to focus on that core reality of what of what God's ultimate mission, God's ultimate purpose is uh, for the world. And just to frame our thoughts around this a little bit, uh, I have three main sections for the study this morning, which are uh, missions from a biblical perspective, and that's going to take the bulk of our time. So don't panic when I get to point two, and we have five minutes left, okay? But that's gonna be our main area of focus this morning. And then missions from a reformed perspective and missions in the context of the present world. A little bit of when the rubber meets the road uh, to conclude our our thoughts. As we think of missions from a a biblical biblical theology perspective, it's important to consider that there are only four chapters in the scriptures that describe the cosmos, the universe, without sin the first two chapters in Genesis, and the last two chapters in Revelation. Everything that unfolds between those two great parentheses is what it tells us about what God is doing to deal with the issue of sin in the world. But if we want to really understand God's ultimate mission, God's purpose, uh, we must go to those vital passages. And I'd like to focus on the aspect of God's eternal purpose in terms of God's desire for the nations to savor, to experience the healing power of his life. God's desire for the nations to savor the healing power of his life. Now, first question is, where is the Great Commission given? And if you were listening to, I think it was Larson's exhortation some weeks ago, what is the answer to that? It's obvious, right? Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 27, God says, God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Human beings are created as God imi God's image bearers called to exercise God's rule over earth. And in the order of creation, obviously, we're created in God's image, but we're created uh, as lower life forms than God, obviously. God is eternal uh, and all-powerful, and, and we, are, we are image bearers, but we're a much lower life form. However, if we, if we read uh, kind of God's heart, I think his intent has always been to share his life with humans. And the, the reason I think that is that he put in the garden the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I think it's reasonable to interpret that God's purpose was for these humans he created to experience, to participate in his life. He wanted his character, his nature, his glory to be expressed through mankind. Uh, as we all know, however, our first parents did not eat from the tree of life. They ate from the wrong tree, I believe, the tree that God forbid, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the knowledge of good and bad. And what happened? Well, first of all, their eyes were open. They became self-sufficient creatures, relying on themselves. They had the power, the ability to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. And with that knowledge, they sought to do good and avoid evil in their own way. So you think, what's so wrong about trying to be good and, 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 and trying to avoid evil? I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who I think rightly uh, said that um, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the essence of man-made religion. So uh, religion teaches us how to decide good from evil. Religion teaches us how to do our very best to avoid evil and do good. And you say, what's the problem with that? And by the way, we see that even with atheist, humanistic uh, religion as well. You know, we're being told what's good and what's bad now. You know, you can't say this, you can't say that. And the problem is that when you, when you drive your actions by what's good and what's bad, you're really expecting human life, which is now fallen corrupt, and polluted to live like divine life does. So God's mission, God's desire was to put his life into human beings. And let me ask you, if that happens, if God puts his life in a human being, what would be the result? Well, that human being becomes his child. Because this brings us to the idea of birth. Birth is giving life, imparting life. God wanted children. He wanted sons and daughters to express his life. His, his spiritual DNA, his attributes on this earth. And after the first human beings fell, obviously God closed off the garden, barred access to the tree of life. And uh, humanity ever since, we know we find ourselves outside the garden in a realm of death, decay, grief, longing to return. Now after the flood, uh, God continued the course of human history, the human race in three dimensions. Uh, through Noah's three sons as they repeopled the world. Um, Shem's descendants are said to represent the majority of the people in the Middle East, the Semites. Ham's descendants are thought to have settled mainly in Africa and Asia. 
and Japheth's descendants uh, were said to have settled in the areas of, of Europe and Northern Asia. And then in Genesis 10, we read the Table of Nations, which is a fascinating account of 70 countries, uh, 70 nations mentioned as the population of the world continues to, to splinter and go into all the, the world. There's a, there's a Canadian anthropologist that has a fascinating study. If, uh, if you're interested, we can, I can give you the details, but tracing the names of all those nations and the history of mankind. And then we come to Genesis 11 and we read, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And linguists today, by comparing the various modern day languages, can kind of reconstruct, or they know there was a, what they, what they call proto-Indo-European or proto-Semitic language, which is hugely influential in the development of culture and the language of the world today. So now we see not only the fragmentation of races and nations, but a fragmentation also of language and communication as humankind uh, expands into the world. And in the very next chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 12, we hear a beautiful sound. What is it? It is the sound of the voice of God. God calls Abraham, and he tells him, he gives him a promise. He says, in thee shall all families of the, earth, of the world, of the earth, be blessed. So God's mission is crystal clear. In Genesis 15, he says, look toward heaven, number the stars, and if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for as righteousness, the Bible says. Now we fast forward many, many years, but in Sinai, Israel was in covenant fellowship with God. Uh, and, and they were commissioned to live as a priestly kingdom, as a holy nation. And part of their mission was to be a light to the Gentiles. And we get to the line of David, when a king would arise and draw and gather the nations back to the presence of God. Uh, it's in, in David, the Great Commission became again a, a divine charge uh, to a human king like Adam. Uh, in Psalm 2, we read, uh, in the midst of raging nations, the Lord declares, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have uh, begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. That's God's bleeding heart coming through the page of, of covenant history. Now, obviously, for about 1,500 years, during the, the period of the Mosaic uh, covenant, the only way to access God was to be a Jew or to become a proselyte to Judaism and to keep all 613 commandments of the Jewish religion. Now, we find that God's people, instead of, uh, instead of acting as a light to the nations, they, they started to put up barriers uh, to the Gentiles. And we get a pretty good feeling of how the, Jew, the Jews regarded Gentiles in the story of Jonah. Now, you remember Jonah, he was told to go and, and preach repentance to who? To the Assyrians, to Nineveh. That's more or less where, where Bijan is from, right, that area? A little low. No, well, we won't make the association there, but... Anyway, the Assyrians made the great contribution to human history of inventing the cross as an instrument of, uh, of capital punishment. So they weren't very nice people. And, and we judged Jonah, right? But maybe we would have done exactly the same, going the opposite direction. Uh, he said, I'm not going to preach to these brutes. 
over there. And uh, he went to Joppa, which is a coastal village in Israel. And from Joppa, he took a ship to Nineveh, which is modern-day Spain. Not everyone who's trying to get back to Spain is, 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 is that way, though. So anyway, um, he said, you know, it's, it's fascinating. When he comes to the end of the book in Jonah 4, remember he was, he, he, he was enjoying the shade from this plant, and it dies on him, and he's feeling miserable. And God tells him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And, you should, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? So God is saying, you feel pity for a gourd. You feel sorry when your iPhone doesn't work. And I can't feel pity for a whole city of people. His heart for the nations. And then in exile, in the, in the context of Israel's deep apostasy, God sent out a fresh promise to raise up a servant in the line of David, who would not only lead the tribes through a new exodus, but he would be given, as Isaiah 49 says, he would be given as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And over and over again, you see God, God is for the nations of this world. This suffering servant would endure God's judgment in bearing the sins of many. And then as exalted priest, he would sprinkle many nations. Now, in the last book, oops, in the last book of the, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, obviously the Hebrew Bible that, the, that they read in the time of Jesus had a different book order. Okay? It was the law, the prophets, and then the writings. And the last book of the writings is Chronicles. Well, that very last, the very last verses in Chronicles ends with a great commission. This is how the writings ends. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord God be with him. Let him go up. So Cyrus, the king of Persia, had been called by God in Isaiah as God's shepherd, the one who would gather the lost sheep of Israel since they had scattered in exile. And he was also called in Isaiah 45, God's anointed, God's anointed, which the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, uses the word Christos. He's called the Christ, God's anointed, because what looked like the end of the world for God's people was actually a step further in God's project to redeem the world. God took hold of a king of the nations, Cyrus, as his anointed, shepherding his people back into God's authority and fellowship. And then we come to what C.S. Lewis called the chapter on which the whole plot turns, which is Christ, the birth of Christ. Uh, Matthew tells us in the first verse, he says, son of Abraham, the son of David. And that should set off all the alarms in our minds as to the promises made to Abraham and David of blessings to the nations. And we've got to keep in mind that when the, the second person of the triune God pierced through time and space in that miracle of the incarnation, which none of us can understand, something historic happened. Okay? It wasn't just that, that the, Son of God, the Son of God came to die for our sins, which he did, and which we're commemorating especially during these days. But when Jesus entered the planet, I believe that the tree of life 
was being offered again to human beings. You see, we, we can have our doubts about and our disagreements about whether the tree of life in Genesis in Eden contained God's life. Uh, that's a subject for, for debate for sure. The Bible doesn't say that. But there can be no doubt that Jesus in, 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 came in human form offering God's own life. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.11 says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Born of God means having God's life. And the father wanted, as I've said, many sons and daughters to reflect his image here. And of course, you trace Christ's miracles and teachings, and the life of God was a recurring theme in his ministry. First of all, consider his signs, right? The, just the, the seven signs mentioned in John are turning water into wine at a wedding feast, so reversing the shame and the shortage and bringing life and joy to a wedding feast. Have you ever been in a wedding feast without? Well, I've been in some without wine, and it's not that nice. But uh, without joy, I mean, there has to be joy at a wedding feast. And that, that's so, so, so amazing that that is the first miracle that Christ performs. I love that. The first thing I do is bring life to a wedding feast. Healing the nobleman's son, bringing healing and new life to a home. Healing the lame man. I mean, imagine first century life without being able to walk. So bringing life, a new life to someone. Um, feeding the multitude, he literally gave life-sustaining bread to a huge crowd. Healing the blind man. Um, life and light, and John especially, are very intertwined, those concepts. So restoring sight is, is giving someone's life back. And then obviously in the raising of Lazarus, we see Christ demonstrating just pulverizing power over death. And then in his words, you see in John chapter 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Consume me in, in digestible, absorbable form. I am God's life. If you eat from me, you have God's life. Then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Sisters and brothers, this means that he he. He, he isn't saying, I will give you life, right? Or I, I, I cause the resurrection. He is, I am the resurrection, and I am the life of God. He is the embodiment of the life of God, the eternal. And later, John says in one of his epistles, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, there's this concept among Christians sometimes that eternal life is what happens when I die. So I die... And then, and then I'm in eternity, eternal life happens then. But according to the scriptures, Jesus is the eternal life of God. And the life of God is in Christ. And he came that we might have life and that we might have it, what? More abundantly. Now, I've heard that verse. Sometimes some radio preachers will, 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 will pound on that verse a little bit, you know, and... and um, They'll say that abundant life means having a prosperous life. And of course, the, the Bible is very clear that riches and wealth is a blessing from God, but I don't think this is what this verse is saying. 
You know, it's, it's not, it's, you know, I heard one guy say, you claim it, you name it, you, you blab it, you grab it, and God gives it to you. That's not this concept of abundant life in that artificial sense. Uh, Jesus is talking about a certain kind of life. This abundant life is divine life. You will have God's life in abundance. That's why he came. He didn't just come to forgive us our sins, although thanks be to God, that is so. He gave us to, came to give us his life, to infuse us with his own life. Now, the fact that Christ chose 12 apostles is no doubt an echo of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he was restoring the kingdom of Israel. But we notice throughout the Gospels these precious moments, these precious times when he addressed and dealt with Gentiles as well. And I find it interesting that in Luke 10, it says, After this the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And I wonder, I'm not a theologian per se, but I wonder, is it mere chance that uh, that is the same number of nations in the table of nations? Seventy reflects completeness, uh, the whole cosmos, the whole order. Christ's ministry obviously culminated with the leaders of uh, Abraham's family, the chief priests, killing him on what they thought was a tree of death. But God converted, God transformed the tree of death into a tree of life. The veil that separates humanity from God's Shekinah glory is ripped open, giving all humanity access again to intimacy and connection with their creator. And whoever eats from this new tree of life discovers the gift of God's eternal life, as it were, sprouting into a new humanity. In a sense, people who have God's life God's people are a new species. We're born of God. We have God's life in us. We're complete human beings restored to, to, to his uh, original creation order. Now, during, uh, during Christ's passion, we see some interesting encounters that he has. And it's good to reflect on these. On the way to the cross, the soldiers pick out a man from the crowd, maybe because he sticks out as a, as a foreigner. We don't know, really that they pick up out a man in the Simon of Cyrene, and they compelled him to bear his cross, it says. Now, Cyrene, does anyone know where Cyrene is? Yes, it's in, it's in Africa, right? It's in northern Africa. It's in what, what's now, I think it's Libya, right? And uh, Mark 15, 21 specifies that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. So it's, it's like one of these... Gospel writer winks to the eyewitness account. You know, it's like saying, you can check with these guys, uh, Alexander Rufus, they're well known in the Christian community. His dad did this, right? It's one of these internal evidences that is implanted in here. I find that interesting. Uh, now, we the Bible really, again, uh, does not say so, but it is highly likely that Simon was a native of North Africa. We don't know whether he was a Jew, whether he was a, a Greek, we don't know where he was, but I think it's interesting that at least he's from Africa, uh, which, is, which is, you know, you have that, that global uh, already, somebody helping, helping bear Christ's cross on the way to crucifixion. And then shortly later, you've got a criminal hanging on a cross next to Jesus, most likely a fellow Semite, uh, professing faith in God's Messiah. 
And after Jesus willfully gave up his spirit, the centurion, the guy who had orchestrated the execution, uh, surely this was the son of God, he says. So you potentially have descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth reunited to God and each other right there at the foot of the cross. And if you ask me, that, that is truly crucial theory of race. It's understanding that us as a human race have God's life at the foot of the cross. And then as we consider Christ's resurrection, and I think David Nemati, uh, you read this passage last week, which gave me the idea of putting it here. Uh, but John 12 says that, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Mary Magdalene spotted Jesus in the garden and mistakes him for what? For a gardener. There's no, there's no triviality in the scriptures. There's no detail that shouldn't be there. And when she recognizes him, she tries to grab him. And he says, stop clinging to me, but go to my brethren. That's incredibly fascinating. My brethren. It's the first time Jesus says that. And then he says, and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father. This is, you know, all throughout the gospels, Jesus talks about my father, but he never says, your father. So he calls his disciples brethren. He calls his disciples, you have your father in heaven. Why? Because the tree of life is a seed-bearing tree. When you read Genesis 1, all the trees of the garden gave seed after their own kind. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his resurrected state, is a life-giving spirit. That is, he bears the seed of the divine life, and he dispenses, he gives that life into his disciples, into his body, and they become the children of God. So when we get to Matthew 28, uh, we must arrive with a full weight of providential history, right? The last Adam, the seed of Abraham, the real Israel, the greater David, the true shepherd, the anointed servant, the son of God, ascends on high to reign from the heavenly Mount Zion. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This command to go creates a contrast with God's people under the old covenant. Because for centuries, God's mission of redeeming the nations was uh, centripetal. I'm no engineer. Uh, but uh, centripetal is what? Drawing in, right? And God's nations were drawn to Jerusalem to worship at Mount Zion. Uh, however, God's people had failed in this mission. And the temple, which Christ called a house of prayer for all the nations, had been turned into a den of thieves and was slated for destruction. And now instead, God's mission, still the same, rede redemption of the nations, turned centrifugal flowing from the triune power of God, where life is shared in everlasting peace. We're called to give the good news of peace that would break down the dividing walls so that humanity together would form a living temple for God. So we're told to go with, the, with God's life in us to share that life with others, which obviously transforms all our lives, our families, our culture, our neighborhoods. 
And then, as we keep reading at Pentecost in the book of Acts, and you can probably see this coming, right? Um, 40 days after the resurrection, the Tower of Babel is reversed. And somebody mentioned this recently, I will. I just find, it, find this fascinating. Instead of not being able to understand each other, now all the nations mentioned in the table of nations could hear their own language spoken. And just to make sure we understand what's going on here, Luke, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us three lengthy accounts in Acts of key conversions to Christ. You've got Philip. He's sent to encounter the, the Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Ham. You have Peter in Joppa, of all places, <laughs> the same place from where Jonah was sent. And he was told to go, of all, of all people, to a centurion of the Roman army. You know how hard that was for Peter? Uh, Cornelius. Of course, he was, uh, he was a descendant of Japheth. Uh, I believe he was Spanish because, uh, well, there's a translation issue there, but um, yeah. Um, uh, you have, uh, you have, you have uh, Cornelius, obviously, obviously a descendant of Japheth from Europe, most likely. And in the account of Saul's, Saul of Tarsus' conversion, you see a descendant of Shem, very much a Semite, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and all of them finding the life of God in Christ. So the message is clear, is that all humanity in 3D can now live by God's life through Christ. And this is the Christian life. Uh, not trying to build enough knowledge to discern what is good and what is bad not listening to enough podcasts and reading enough books to have enough data to make good choices, to define our rules, to drive our actions. Again, I'm not against any of that, other than the fact I don't have time to listen to too many podcasts. But uh, there's an, an element of a growing in knowledge, but that is not the Christian life. What is the Christian life? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are the temple of the living God, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we are not surprised when we get to the last chapter of the Bible to see in, in that very last chapter, on either side of the river was a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit for each month. And the leaves of the tree were for what? For the healing of the nations. And that healing has been going on for centuries. And, and we certainly need that healing. Uh, just in our family this week, we've had uh, you know, the death of Eddie's grandmother. Uh, her brother uh, was told he has leukemia. Uh, and we have suffering and pain and anguish and anxiety uh, in our lives. But there is nothing uh, like, the, like, the, like taking of the leaves of the tree of life, of Christ's healing power. And... How breathtaking it will be to stand there as all the nations come clothed in white robes, people from every kindred, every tongue, and we fix our eyes on the root of David, uh, the, 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 the branch of the stem of Jesse. There are those tree metaphors again. And we sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, for he was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood. And everyone's singing that in their own tongue. Now, the, the, the little elephant in the room, perhaps, or maybe a bigger elephant in the room, is that sometimes, this is where I segue to my second point, 
is that sometimes Reformed Calvinistic churches are thought of as being not very evangelistic or, or missions focused, right? And uh, we're some, I've, I've heard of us called sometimes as the chosen frozen. Have you heard that? I, 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 I don't believe anything could be further from reality, right? If you were to rattle off a list of some of even the best known evangelists and missionaries in the history of Christian missions, many of them were reformed. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, John Patton, David Brainerd, Amy Carmichael, David Livingston, etc. Long, 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 long list. The Reformation sparked a movement of sending missionaries around the world that has, has been unstoppable. So many of the evangelized countries of the known world were evangelized by reformed uh, people and were not who were not hindered by their belief in God's sovereignty and election, uh, but were actually fueled and impassioned by it. God is sovereign, and he uses sinners, broken sinners, to reach broken sinners. And uh, I'll just pick a couple random names from, from, from the Reformed hat. You've got Calvin. Calvin is perhaps not associated in our minds with missions and evangelism, but um, the plague was ravaging Europe. And there was an incident where the, the council in Geneva, they thought that his role in the Reformation was so crucial that they told him, look, don't go visit people who are sick. You know, we need your life. And he, he, he responded and he said, what kind of shepherd would I be if I did not visit and evangelize the most broken of the world? He said, we must carry forward the preaching with the which the apostles began. He believed that the church had become so corrupt in Europe that the only hope for the church was evangelism, a recovery of the gospel, and a proclaiming of the gospel. The, the ministerial company, the seminary that he started in Geneva, it has this in its charter. They say, it, it says, ministers, pastors, are to maintain and be persuaded that the doctrine which they preach is of God and that it leads to him and that the grace which God has given us through our Lord Jesus Christ should be known as befits it, and that all people should know the right way of salvation in order to attain it. It's impossible that they should not desire this doctrine to be disseminated everywhere. So they were, they were saying that not only should all people obviously know the gospel in order to be saved, but that ministers should desire for the gospel to be made known. It's impossible not to desire that. So God saves people, but he saves through people. He, he uses the church as an agent by which the gospel is brought to the end of the earth. Uh, another name, uh, maybe not so random, but one of my favorite writers is J. Gresham Mason, a Presbyterian New Testament scholar, uh, early 20th century. And um, the church at the time was really drifting from the gospel yeah, to, to the idols of ease and comfort. And he was very encouraged uh, by the promises of God. Um, he said, God will not only build and protect the church, but he will invigorate and enable this church to carry the gospel to the very corners of the, of, the, of the earth. Right after World War I, he said, if the church has failed, it is at least perfectly clear why she has failed. She has failed because men have been unwilling to receive and the church has been unwilling to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. The proclamation of the gospel, he said, is the clear joy of every Christian man. Cornelius Van Til was an Orthodox Presbyterian seminary professor, apologist, wrote amazing books. I think we studied one with the Namadis. Uh, a little known fact is that, was it Cornelius? Uh, Henry. 
Henry Tan. Okay, yeah, sorry. All right. And um, a little known fact is he would take students to downtown New York City and stand there in, in, the, in the street and preach the gospel. And uh, he would go to hospitals and go into people's rooms and actually say, I'm, I'm a pastor, can I pray with you? Regardless of whether they were a Christian or not. And of course, that's a little bit uh, strange. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't use that, that method. But it, it reflects a heart and a burden to reach uh, those who were lost. He said, if Luther and Calvin were sober men, how much more should we be today now, now that the times are even more perilous? And that was in 1963. Our task as Christians is to unite in a common effort of carrying forth the gospel as proclaimed by the reformers to a world that is lost in sin today. In 1967, he said, would there once more by the grace of God be men like Luther and Calvin, men like Hugh Latimer, who stand for the grace of God without compromise? Only if each one of God's people will see himself in the light of the calling that he has, together with all the people of the covenant, to become a blessing to all nations, will they be able to face the future with joy and confidence instead of fear. I love that quote. The only way to face the future with joy and confidence as God's people is by fulfilling God's mission for us. And again, just a random other name from the Reformed hat, Doug Wilson. Uh, in, in, last year's, in, in last year's mission week at Moscow, he said, uh, our task of evangelism is recruiting people from all over the world to come join the choir, to come join the workforce, to come join the army. We have weaknesses, but ours are invincible weaknesses because one like the Son of Man entered into the throne room of the heavens. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why the laughter of the saints needs to be deep and full and rich and absolutely filled with faith. One throne stands absolutely secure. One throne is untouchable by any political upheaval here. And that is the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are his servants and you are his body and you are the extension of Christ's presence in the world. I'm so glad I can quote these great men because that is wonderful. We are the extension of God's presence in the world. And that leads us into the third point, missions in the context of the modern world. God's word tells us that no matter what goes on in this world, and there are some hideous, horrible things going on, maybe in our personal lives, political, and with the nations, no matter what goes on, everything can and will be made right through the cross of Jesus Christ. Behold, he makes all things new. Salvation for all the world and for Every human being is found in Christ alone, and that is the good news. Let me circle back to the story I told you at the beginning. The waiter on the cruise ship was my dad. Is my dad. He's turning 80 in a, uh, next month. And sometimes I, I wonder what would have happened, what would have been of his life, not to mention the legacy of grace in the life of all his family and thousands of people, had that couple from Decatur who were consumed with grief over the loss of their young son, had not befriended him, had not joined him in conversation and gotten to know him and invited him to his house and given him a Bible. And I'll say this bluntly, uh, I, I really don't think we're all missionaries. There are probably differences of opinion on that. But I think it was Spurgeon who said that Christians are either missionaries or frauds. That's 
that's a strong claim. I, I, maybe it's a matter of semantics or definitions, but I personally don't believe that uh, uh, all missionary, a missionary is, to me, in my mind, is someone like the Apostle Paul, who, who goes cross-culturally to another country and integrates into a culture where the gospel is not known and plants the seed to advance the kingdom. And, you know, experts believe that still about one-third of the world is still unevangelized. That means that a person born in that country does not have access to the gospel. Uh, there's a huge need for this type of, front, we could call them frontier missionaries, right? Going where there's no, no, no previous work. And I say that because Paul in Romans, he, he's, he's planted churches all up through modern day Turkey, all the way up to Albania. And, and he's, he's been planting churches and he says, there's no more, more for me to do here. <laughs> Which is obviously, obviously there were more people who needed to be reached. But he says, I planted the churches, I want to go to Spain now. Yeah, he's, he's, he's looking to the next frontier. And we need those types of missionaries. But the fact that we're not all missionaries does not mean we cannot all fulfill God's commission and align with God's eternal mission for the nations, right? Here and now. How can we do these things? I'll just name a couple low-hanging fruit of ideas. But we need to start by making disciples in our home. So the Great Commission involves dishes and diapers and, and drama, teenage drama, nobody be offended, uh, just as much as mission trips to Peru. And it has to start in our home. I mean, are we loving our wives as Christ loves the church? Is there, is there a culture where Christ the King and his love is all pervasive? And it flows out of our home. Secondly, I would just highlight, let's, let's worship with abandon, and let's, lo let's love the saints deeply, which I'm preaching to the choir here, because thank God, by his grace, TRC is a great example of that. I love worshiping and, and, and loving the saints here. But I would posit that the most effective evangelism in our culture is probably not standing on the roadside with a big sign, although there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Uh, we could go on for hours about methods of, of reaching the lost. But I would argue that uh, having strong, robust, vibrant, joyful Christian communities where we showcase what it means to be Christ's disciples and citizens of his kingdom by the love we have one another is extremely powerful in our society. People are looking for connection. People are wanting, uh, wanting community. And, and Christ himself says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Genuine, deep love, taking each other's burdens and carrying them. Thirdly, just again, an observation, uh, we can be friends to sinners. And I may, may, be, may be walking on thin ice here. We're, we're, not a, we're not to be friends of the world. We're to be holy and separate. But we're not to bunker down in our homes and not be a friend to the neighbor next door who is a lesbian or who is a Muslim or who is a, who is a sinner. You know, Christ was known as the friend of sinners and so should we. And my question to myself is how many non-Christian friends do I have? Uh, when I meet someone, do I approach these acquaintances uh, with interest and warmth and openness to a friendship? 
or do I recoil in, in, in loathsome disgust at their sin? And it's a fine line, I know, uh, but we must have Christ's heart towards sinners. And interestingly, in Christ's encounters with people, with seekers who were looking for uh, God's kingdom, when he was asked, where do you live, okay, he didn't launch into a theological explanation or, or, or an apologetic debate. He simply, he simply said, come and see. He didn't even give them an address, right? He said, just find, you, know, you want to know where I live? Come, come and see. You. In our language, it would be, come and hang out with me, right? Let's hang out together. Uh, you know, evangelism isn't something of, look, read this tract of four points of salvation, and I have nothing against tracts again. But... I think the biblical pattern is relationship. Uh, you know, have, hosting a barbecue for the whole neighborhood, uh, volunteering uh, in a, at the local jail, jail or something that interests you. Uh, somebody sent out an email recently of having foreign exchange students over in your home for a couple months. Create a culture around you. Take the, your hobby and make that your avenue into other people's life with the good news. Or, or like Philip, you could just walk up to a random stranger and say, hey, what are you reading? That always starts a good conversation. People hate it. You know, if you want to talk to someone, the best thing you can do is just sit in the corner with a book. And you'll, you'll get somebody soon coming and say, hey, what, what are you reading? But that's a good way to start uh, conversing with someone. And let me just finish with this. There are 195 countries in the world. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, you know how many countries are represented in Huntsville, Alabama? Any guesses? 90. That's almost half, half of the nations of the world are here in Alabama. And it would be wrong to not actively pursue the expansion of God's kingdom to all the world geographically, but it would be a mistake to think that the Great Commission is something that happens in a faraway jungle or exotic lands. The Great Commission is taking place with the Muslim clerk at the supermarket. The Great Commission is taking place with a displaced guy who's uh, fleeing from Florida because of a hurricane and staying in your neighborhood Airbnb, and you just randomly meet him on the street. The California Democrat next door. The Hispanic plumber who comes to your home and helps you out in an emergency. So, again, I'm preaching to myself, but let it always be our supreme joy to disciple the nations and to see them receive God's own life under the sovereignty of the Father, driven by the authority of the King of Kings and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we prepare for, for worship this morning, let me just read Psalm 96 in the context of what we said. Verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all, all the people. We're recipients of God's life. Uh, I didn't bring a watch up deliberately, so I don't know how much time we have left, but maybe three minutes. Any, any comments, remarks? Wild accusations of heresy. <laughs> Anything you'd like to like, like to point out or note? <laughs> it's been a joy to share on this, and I hope it's been uh, 
a reminder of God's purpose and our need to align with it as he seeks to save those who are lost. Let's finish in a word of prayer. If nobody has a question or comment, okay. let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much that we can make your blessing known far as a curse is found, as joy to the world says. We pray for Jason Cherry as he's doing just that today in, in the church of the new plant in Georgia, baptizing 11 people, that you would be given strength and give him clarity and joy as he does that ministry. And also be with us today. May we know your presence where two or three are gathered in, in, in your name there. Christ is in the midst of us. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may you empower us through your grace to accomplish your will in our lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.